the Garden Hose Australia podcast, where we talk all things gardening. Your hosts, Jamie and Erin, will wander down the garden path with tea or gin in hand and discuss gardening loves, hates, new discoveries, interview some of our garden heroes, visit inspiring gardens and continue a discussion about plants that started over 30 years ago in primary school. Today we bring you an interview with Lauren from Foraged Flavour, they're a boutique edible flower farm in the Dalesford and Macedon Ranges region of Victoria. This is a really, uh, it's a really fascinating chat, particularly if you've ever been interested in growing edible flowers, using edible flowers. Lauren's been doing this for over 10 years, so she's a bit of an expert in this area. Um, And it's really, she's terrifically down to earth and pragmatic um but also has lots of really you know terrific advice advice and sort of was a bit inspiring for me when I was um after this chat I went out in the garden of course and started thinking oh you could grow more calendula and more viola so Lauren grows um edible flowers um in a sustainable bee friendly way and she services the food services industry so it's a lot of restaurants and uh, bars and that sort of thing buy from her you can go to her website which is foragedflavor.com.au and there is an online store there as well Um, and her instagram is also beautiful Um, so we'll put a link to that in our show notes and on our instagram as well so it's foraged underscore flavor that's well worth following along to so hope you enjoy it thank you for joining us lauren on the podcast to chat about your flower farming journey so i thought maybe we'll just go back to the start so uh-huh. How did you get into flower farming, edible flowers? Uh, completely by chance and accident. Um, it was That's most flower farmers, <laughs> it seems to be. <laughs> Just once you're in, you're hooked and you know, there's no leaving after that. I was studying and... Um, just over my summer holidays, had the opportunity to supply a local distributor of hydroponic products, um, herbs and sprouts with Ah. edible flowers. There was family friends and we were just chatting about the rise of edible flowers at the time. And um, I've always been passionate about food and um, food trends. And it was um, just... Yeah, there was a real, it always kind of fluctuates in and out of out of uh, food culture, I guess. But um, mm. in the early 2000s, uh, there was a massive resurgence of edible flowers and microherbs. Um, I remember all the microherbs on yeah, plates everywhere. Yeah. yeah, which are beautiful as well. Yeah, so I was asked if I wanted to just very casually supply picked flowers from the garden to mm-hmm. uh, those few in, few inquiries um 
that uh, my friends were having for um, edible flowers. So I started doing that. I uh, started speaking to chefs and learning a lot more about it. Um, I had absolutely no background in horticulture, in gardening, um, and I didn't know the names of any plants or any flowers. <laughs> so very, very steep learning curve. And eventually it just, the business just grew in uh, popularity. I was energized and uh, became more and more enthusiastic with my chats I was having with local chefs who were mm -hmm. really encouraging and um, just wanting lots of different things, anything new. Um, so that was a really motivating factor as well. And eventually it got too time consuming to pursue both my studies and um, the edible flower business that I had to make a decision and the flowers won. <laughs> <laughs> So have you been doing that full-time for quite a few years now then? Yeah, uh, for 10 years. Um, wow. Growing a family as well as growing yeah. flowers. <laughs> yeah, well, that's challenging. <laughs> so what flowers did you start with? Um, mostly roses, uh, cottage varieties, lots of annuals, um, things that were commonly found around the garden. So violas, lavender, nasturtium flowers and calendulas. Mm. And do you still grow all of those today? Yeah, we still grow all of those. There's so many edible flowers and there's so many things that can be grown, but it's really the market that dictates what we grow. Um, there's lots of different varieties that I'm particularly passionate about, but they might not be received so well um, in restaurants just because of the way they're used uh, in that setting. Maybe the leaves are too big, maybe they don't have a great shelf life or the flavour is too intense or whatever the reason is. What I, what I think would make it a, be a good candidate for an edible flower isn't necessarily what the chef wants. Oh, so have you seen sort of uh, like trends in which sort of flowers they're after over time? They're actually pretty, it's pretty um, stable, actually. They, there's always a demand for viola, roses, elderflower but yeah those small little pretty flowers always hugely popular just because the way it can like lift up a dish instantly and you know you eat with your eyes first and they yeah. just really bring the plate to life I saw on one of your Instagram posts you're picking I think it was geranium was it that you oh were yes and pelagoniums yeah yeah <laughs> so what sort of do you just grow them out in the open or are they under no protection? no so that's another um issue with the flowers being so delicate, they need to be mm. protected from the wind and the weather and the rain. So there are some varieties that uh, the petals are much thicker and much more hardy and they can withstand the rain and the wind and they don't get damaged so much. Um, so the violas, the dianthus, they kind of stand up to the weather, but things like nasturtiums, yeah, there's some varieties that I just would only grow inside because the time in deadheading is just uh, too consuming. Ah, of course. So I suppose to be able to, you know, we all deadhead to get more flowers just in our home gardens, but I guess that must be a massive part of your job. It's about getting the balance right in the demand for the product and what we've planted. So mm. um, there's the thought that you can, you know, just grow far more than what you require to make sure that you've always got the product. But then there's a problem that, yeah, well, if you're not using those flowers, they get old and spent. Um, and the fast, especially with annual flower, annual plants, um, the faster mm. they go to seed, then 
the shorter the life of the plant. So you need to be constantly deadheading, not just to, to maintain the freshness of the flower, but to extend the life of the plant as well. Okay. And how are the geranium ones used? How are people using geranium flowers? Um, I love geraniums. Yeah. <laughs> Heligodium, Heligodiums, I should say. Yeah. <laughs> the scented geraniums, mm. um, like the rose scented geraniums, or there's, um, you know, the lemon scented geraniums. Yeah, they've got a beautiful um, aroma as well they're just a, a beautiful little flower that again like a viola just um, have a, a visual aesthetic to them that um, mm. kind of brings to life a dessert or a cocktail yeah and I have seen lately when you know out and about wine bars or you know mm. cocktail bars and that there's more and more like dried fruit and flowers being used in drinks I think yeah yeah and I saw that you were doing the dried citrus slices Oh yeah, well. I had been doing those for a little. They were a little. They were a kind of a, a side shoot that came out of uh, COVID when all the restaurants shut down and we needed to really quickly just diversify. I'd been supplying to some hamper companies, designed a little sachet of dried edible flowers for a cocktail hamper that they were doing, and then just. Uh, by chance, again, they asked if I knew anyone who could do dried, dried citrus and I was already doing the um, dried edible flowers and I had dried citrus before and I just, yeah, was able to kind of pivot into that market as well. And, yeah, I, lo I love the dried citrus. I was going to ask you about um, COVID, the effect of that, because you sort of got a double whammy of it, you know, when I know a lot of flower farmers then sort of the florist market they would normally supply mm dried up but then all the hospitality for you as well and how yeah. that yeah impacted you and your farm but the florist interest the florist industry was interesting because of the um lack of imports at the time so I think the mm. microflower farms around here were able to yeah do quite well out of the lockdowns and the restrictions to importing and the delays in, in shipments and also everybody was home and I know there were a lot of people that were hugely negatively impacted financially but there were also a lot of people that had nowhere to spend their money so we're spending it locally and supporting you know the regional mm. areas and the micro yeah, that for me yeah just I, I was pretty happy going along just growing fresh edible flowers and there was just I'd always um, wanted to get into the dried flower market but the timing was just never right we always had enough flowers to supply the demand that we had and we didn't really ever need to go chasing sales so mm -hmm. we were in a pretty good position but yeah the sudden shutdown of the hospitality industry and then mm. we had these flowers and the uncertainty of not knowing when we we're going to open up again meant that I still had to maintain the crops and look after them ridiculous amount of deadheading so mm. we just needed to preserve those flowers and that's when we kind of developed the the dried edible flower range which has become yeah really popular uh, especially with bars and restaurants because um, the big blooms as a as a cocktail garnish and even a cake garnishes uh, can be quite stunning. Yeah, I've seen them. A lot of them used on cakes and they're so beautiful and so mm. lovely. And yours are still so vibrant, the colours mm. <coughs> I've noticed on there. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I saw the pale pink um, carnation petals. are so oh, pretty yeah, too. Oh. Yeah, I think when they dry, they kind of, 
become much more dense and so the color becomes quite vibrant mm. and as long as they're stored and not too old we have a pretty high turnover of our dried edible flowers so we're not storing them for mm. very long and that's probably one of the dead giveaways of imports as well because um, they can be stored for a really long time and shipped from all over the world mm. um, they could be quite old before you receive them so they yeah fade and lose their color a lot so I don't know so maybe. how do you dry them and um, there's lots of ways you can dry them so um we dry them in dehydrators regular food dehydrators the same as what you dehydrate fruit in uh you can dry them just in the sun uh, it's really important that they have um, a lot of turnover and airflow or so that they don't rot um, but you could leave them out just in the sun and they'll dry really slowly um, that's a really good way of doing it actually it's quite time it takes a couple of weeks but um, it's very effective and then a lot of people are starting to freeze dry edible flowers as well which is a pretty energy intensive way of doing it but it's uh, gaining more and more popularity um, and do the freeze-dried ones look different to the, like, the dehydrated ones or are they pretty uh, similar? Quite a knack of getting it right. Freeze-dryers are becoming more, the technology is becoming more accessible. It's not as expensive as it was when I first started 10 years ago. We okay. had to uh, send the flowers off to be specially freeze-dried by another company and it was a really expensive process. And there was a lot of trial and error in getting getting that right getting the timing right so yeah they I think they're we don't do freeze-dried edible flowers at the moment so um, I don't have a lot of uh, kind of yeah. experience with those but um, I know yeah dried flowers generally are quite brittle and fragile so mm. yeah but it is it's quite an art form to be able to get that recipe right for the freeze. Yeah. <laughs> yes. on your um, website you talk about your flowers being bee friendly so can you mm. tell us a bit about what that means Ah, there's so many words that are kind of thrown around in the um, in the florist and microflower farm kind of space. Spray free, bee friendly, organic, certified organic. So I guess we are really careful about what we use um, and how we yeah how we grow up our plants because obviously they're pretty much ready to eat. You can't. I mean, we you you can rinse the flowers and inspect them, but um, they're pretty much picked and eaten fresh. So you want them yeah. to be as safe as possible. And also in my gardening and my, I call it gardening, I guess it's farming. <laughs> <laughs> Practices. Big gardening. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, we, yeah, I'm, I'm very much aware of the importance of beneficial insects and getting that balance right and being really sensitive to the the insect life, the microecology and the balance that happens in your garden. So I have a really great contact um, in biological services. Oh, am I allowed to say yeah. the name of the company? <laughs> yeah, 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 that's fine. <laughs> many, many um, suppliers of um, predator bugs and ah, yeah. um my my go-to is um James Altman from Biological Services and he's just mm -hmm. a massive wealth of knowledge and I take up far too much of his time <laughs> um asking about what I do with this problem what, what I do with that problem so yeah in in our flowers being bee friendly we're just really conscious of um the effects of everything we do on on the bees 
um, and other predator bugs that are really essential to pollination and making sure that all of the pests are kept in check and that we have a good balance in our, in our gardens and we're not using really toxic herbicides and pesticides and toxic sprays. So uh, it's largely, I guess, like a harm, harm minimization approach to gardening not completely being strictly organic but kind of just being... pretty difficult to be like certified organic <laughs> yeah it's a really hard process it is and it's not necessarily the most and say something quite controversial now it's not necessarily <laughs> you know just because something's organic doesn't mean it's safe and just because mm. something's synthetic doesn't mean it's not safe so um and being certified organic is um you know there's just a, a large list of rules about allowable mm. imports and uses of, of different things in your in your farming yep. practices. So um, I think being informed about what the effects of the products that you're using, for example, pyrethrum is considered a natural product, but it's quite a wide, you mm. know. Um, it's a bit of a broad context. spectrum. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So it can have very negative effects on your populations and as a result you end up getting making your your pest problems worse because you remove all those predators out of your garden yeah have you had any problems with a particular pest yes it's really difficult <laughs> <laughs> i currently am finding slater bugs um, oh. uh, what do they go after the roots they're quite good at oh. breaking down um, organic matter so they're great for compo composts and living in your soil and usually they're fine but when you have them in really really large numbers they like to eat the roots of nice young seedlings and mm. I'd prepared some um, beautiful garden beds I did everything right I put all my biological stimulants in it I everything was great the growing conditions for these baby viola were absolutely perfect I covered the the bed in mulch it was the middle of summer I kept the soil nice and moist and everything was perfect these viola were loving life and then all of a sudden they would just die um, and a bit of digging around I found that there were tiny 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 baby slater bugs eating the roots of my plants yeah so it's still a problem about battle with but we did a lot of experimenting about what the best um, kind of way to combat these slater bugs were so we tried Ah, little bowls of uh, Vegemite and water and beer and water. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. like you do to sort of trap snails or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So a similar kind of approach to, to snugs. Uh, snugs slug. <laughs> so like a cute bug. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, and then we had the, the toilet paper rolls that were filled with potato shavings and we had mm. scrunched up damp newspaper in in little um small pot containers garden pot containers mm. and we also the most effective that I found out of all of that every every everything had its own benefits and uh targeted different different insects which was mm -hmm. quite interesting to see that you know I was getting the um the millipedes were being attracted to um, the potato peels um, oh, yeah. getting spiders living in my newspaper <laughs> pots which was good I guess yeah but the it was the iron snail pellets that really had the best effect on the slater bugs oh, iron ones yeah mm. the multi-guard the ones that are safe for the dogs ah, and the cats, right but, mm. okay Oh, that's so, good to know. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, the, the solution's not, the problem hasn't gone away completely yet. 
completely yet but Mm. yeah it was just doing a lot of trial and error and seeing what was going to work which was a huge investment of time but it was a really fun experiment to do as well and you mentioned there when you were preparing your beds that you added your biological stimulants tell me about those what are those that you add in uh lots of kind of seaweed solutions Mm -hmm. uh, the obvious ones um worm like worm I call it worm wee but worm locate locate is that yeah comes out of the your worm farm it's not the worm tea but it just comes out of the yeah the leachate do you do you worm have your own worm farm yeah I do well my son does I um mm-hmm. oh, well I, I do have a big tub of a big bathtub that I've converted to a worm farm at the at the farm um and at home my son has his own little worm cafe as well and they're his pets yeah. my kids enthusiastically I think this was towards the end of COVID decided to create one because we had a couple of old bathtubs that we'd yeah. grown some things in create a worm farm and then I think they were excited for a month and then just totally forgot about it. Not really. <laughs> yeah. um, maybe they kind of grew out of it. My son's four, so he's still very enthusiastic about his worms. Oh, my son's 14. <laughs> <laughs> Fingers crossed when Louis's 14, he's still loving his worms. And- yeah. yeah, I think they just, you know, he's moved on to indoor plants now, so his room's oh, okay. full of indoor plants. I think he thought that the worms, there was enough action, so... <laughs> he sort of put that back to me so I've just added it to my list of garden jobs (laughs) really yeah (laughs) it's true at least don't pick up after them too much (laughs) so on one of your posts went on pests and you had a a a good beneficial bug you were showing a parasitic wasp that was in oh okay yeah that was Um, interesting I thought you were going to mention the ladybugs yeah, the par- oh, we all love ladybugs. <laughs> yeah. uh, the parasitic wasps, I buy them in from biological services and you can get them in a little um, kind of little tube of a mixture of different wasps because there are so many different types of aphids and you have to make sure that the wasp oh. that you have matches, you know, the aphid that you have a problem with. And, yeah, they're amazing. They come in and you release them. And you do um, successive releases two weeks apart and they impregnate the aphid with an egg and then that Mm. egg develops inside the aphid. The aphid mummifies and becomes less like a solid gold little shell attached to your plant and then the wasp hatches out out of the mummified aphid. Oh, wow. It's really incredible to see. So, do you need to keep buying them in, or do you, can you no, buy they, less once yeah. they're there? You so they establish themselves in the garden, and you also um, just make sure that you've got enough plants around to attract them to the garden as well. So, um, I plant a lot of alyssum in all of my beds, so oh, it doesn't drop yeah. ears. I'll plant sweet alyssum. Mm-hmm. Um, Greek basil is another good one that has pollen to to sustain all your predator populations um, and allows them a, a place to kind of build up their populations as well um, and then fight all the the predators in your garden the problem that we have here is that it gets so cold over winter that the predators mm-hmm. are really only active when it gets to about 15 degrees so yeah, okay. um, between the months of around about april may until about mid-september the beneficial insects are, are reasonably ineffective against the pests Okay, is that when you're growing? Is it like violas and calendulas over that? Yeah, yeah. So it's a bit of a constant battle over winter. 
So that's why I call myself a seasonal flower farm because <laughs> <laughs> trying to grow outside of the seasons um, when the gardens, yeah, in this part of the world, not much grows over winter. I don't know what you've had success mm. with in your garden. No, I'm the same. It's um, so frosty and um, and even and windy, sort of the tail end of winter going into spring it seems to be quite windy where I am so I'm in Kyneton in a similar region and um, we only get usually over winter maybe one really light snow here not not much like that but just a constant frost yeah yeah look I've I generally say for us it's Anzac Day through to at least Cup Day but then um, we've had a, a few the last couple of years where at the end of November we've had a frost. So just after you think, oh, it's safe to put tomatoes out yeah. or something yeah. like that. <laughs> and then they've all been just killed by the frost. So we got a greenhouse um, early early this year, uh, which is great. I mean, it's probably nothing on a scale to what you're growing at. It's only like oh, what is it, eight metres long. But still, that's just made so such a difference. <laughs> yeah. For, for this region, the polytunnels are good at extending the season, but not completely changing the seasons. I feel. So when you were saying about you growing sort of indoors or undercover, is that under the polytunnels? Just polytunnels, yeah. And I've converted, when I first started, I was growing in the soil, mm-hmm. um, but I've started to grow up into raised beds. And I found that's been a much more efficient way of growing. You get much more control over your soil because sadly, when I didn't know anything about gardening and soil the importance of soil I didn't realize that where I grew where I'm growing my flowers is just got really poor depleted clay like heavy soil so Uh, yeah it was just I was just having a lot of trouble growing in it and eventually I learned that it wasn't a great medium for growing anything other than grass so (laughs) and did you learn that through like testing the soil or just, just sort of reading about it and yeah just realizing how the plants were behaving in it lots and lots of reading lots of reading um yeah I've um had some great uh resources that I've found that talk about the importance of soil and how soil behaves and biology of soil and but yeah it was mostly just kind of looking at the soil and it wasn't until um I've kind of traveled around other parts of Victoria and realized that other people have much deeper topsoil than what we have Mm. here yeah even the difference in halfway down my paddock and the top part of the paddock is a beautiful red soil and then halfway down just turns into uh, a really dense gray clay yeah, we have a similar thing here because we're sort of on a bit of a hill and I even noticed where I have my roses out in the orchard paddock. I sort of was growing long rows of them from the start to the bottom and I thought, oh, that'll be fine. And I noticed they would only grow the top two thirds Yeah, and, and it was just because of the, um, the water just all accumulating down the bottom third of it and it sort of goes into that what we call here black kinton pug. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so just yeah over at the moment I mean my piggies I have got a couple of miniature pigs and they're in that sort of the lower part of the property and they love it because mm. it's just all like pigs in mud they've just got natural little ponds all through it at the moment and even in it takes a while to dry out it's not drying out properly till close to Christmas really and then um, when it does dry out it turns to cement oh yeah and it's just huge cracks these big fissures all the way through it it's really that's because before we moved here I lived 
in Melbourne on the sand belt. <laughs> All right. So, so you've gone from one extreme to the other. So uh, I sort of now worries. look back and think about it, how like easy it was to garden there. <laughs> dig a huge hole. Oh, yeah. And here yeah. we need machinery to dig. Yeah, build up our muscles. Yeah. So your raised beds, are you are you sort of edging them and building it up or are you just doing sort of yeah, mounded but- raised beds? Lots, a couple of different styles on the go. I have been growing in, the first ones I put in were just um, just timber, uh, red gum, kind of one sleeper high beds. And then I filled them with just mushroom compost that I'd bought from the local garden supply store, which mm-hmm. don't do much of that anymore because you never know what you get. And then uh, I started doing some corrugated tubs and they worked really well. They were a really good manageable size to work with and easy to install. And so recently I'm doing no dig garden beds where I'm ripped a massive area of 50 metres by about 20 metres. That's a big area. Draped off all of the the top layer of grass, which fingers crossed has worked. Laid down lots of lots of cardboard and then just alternated between wood chip paths and uh, then the no dig bed, which is, you know, putting your branches and your sticks down first on top of the cardboard. And then I've spent most of autumn going around collecting lots and lots of autumn leaves, which has been lots uh, of fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then just building it up with I've been able to secure a really good supply of um, buckwheat from a local farmer as well. Ah, interesting. So buckwheat. So that's your green layer. With yeah. Mm. Um, and garden so when I can mow the grass and lawn clippings on there as well and just build it up uh, slowly over the winter and um, early spring, ready to plant in in summer when um, you kind of need to do that with the edible flowers we do a lot of staggered planting so you have mm-hmm. um, because they're annuals and we're harvesting them quite intensely they yeah they don't have long lifespans um, they are quite productive for maybe a couple of months at the most mm-hmm. um, and then we need to turn keep turning them over just to get the most productivity out of the crops so hopefully these beds will be ready and um a really good substrate for the crops for my summer crops to be planted into do you normally um, raise your all your plants from seed or do you buy in plugs and put them in that way um we it depends on the crop we do direct sow some of our crops but i have tried doing a bit of seed raising and it's really time intensive and labor intensive and yeah. you forget to water them one day and you've lost all that yeah. <laughs> I've done yeah, that. a really hot windy day and they all blow over or yeah so it's actually much more economical for us to buy our seed trays in um yeah. and we can get you know 280 288 trays for you know anywhere between 50 to 90 dollars and by the time I pay the labour to be able to prepare that many seedlings and look after them mm. until they're ready to plant out. It's just not as economically, it's just not as economical to do that. Yeah, I've tried a bit of both to see, you know, what will work for me. And um, it's certainly my most precious resource at the moment is time. And it's just hard having the time to yeah, um, yeah devote to all of that. I, I do, I love propagation and yeah. I love that side of it. But um 
Yeah, before, I've always, I get all my seed and I think, oh, I'm going to do 2,000, yeah. you know, this morning I'm going to do that and before I know it, I've yeah. completely run out of time. Yeah, and it's just devastating when they don't work or something happens mm. and just as you're about to plant them out and something happens and you lose them all. Also, you know, not necessarily having the right conditions, trying to grow seedlings in the mm. summer is quite difficult they can get really leggy or yeah one of my dreams is to have a propagation area where we do grow our own you definitely get the most beautiful most interesting flowers from when they're cross-pollinated and you collect your own seeds we have patches we've had patches of viola that have just self-seeded a couple of years in a row and the the color patterns on them are just they're just you just can't buy them Mm. i've noticed i wonder if that's the same with that um your market for the edible flowers, maybe with cut flowers, there are some florists um, who do like, you know, show me all the twisty, weird and wonderful ones, which is great. But And I think there's more florists who are becoming, you know, more appreciative of that. But, you know, there's the vast majority still seem to want, no, I just want sort of yeah. this identical everything to be this particular way. Do you have a similar kind of thing with um, yeah, your clients for edibles? Yeah, I mean, you get a lot of, there's a huge popular trend towards seasonal produce, but, you know, it's some people want roses in the middle of winter and it's like, mm. no. Yeah, and how did you learn about what was edible and what wasn't? A lot of research, a lot of cross-referencing. There's knowing what reputable sources are because there is a lot of information. You know, there's the obvious ones that are, uh, you know, everybody knows it. Well, most people know are edible and they've been appearing in food for a long time, like your nasturtium flowers or your calendula flowers. I guess the most trusted source is Food Standards um, Australia, New Zealand uh, have the Food Standards Code and uh, Schedule 13, uh, sorry, sc- Schedule 23 of that is a list of prohibited plants and fungi that are prohibited for use as a food item in Australia. So that is the primary source of... Uh, yeah, I didn't even know that existed. Not allowed to be sold as a food product. So interestingly on there is borage, and borage is very commonly used and known as an edible flower. So, hmm. yeah, that's... Yeah, so a lot. I mean, I don't know why it's on there to be honest, because it, it does taste. I think good. I've used borage before <laughs> yeah. in the garden. I'm yeah, exactly. Thinking. You can go into yeah. any any, any uh, chemist and find um, borage oil as well, which is an oral. Mm. You take it orally. So yeah, I'm really confused about that one. It's a, it's a beautiful herbal flower. Not that I'm encouraging people to to, to try <laughs> it, but uh, it's got this great cucumber flavor, kind of like oysters, and on a gin and tonic, mm. it's just um, it's the perfect garnish. So mm. so I do get some people asking for that, and I can't supply it for that reason. Yeah, there's lots of databases online as well. So there's a lot of really good databases um, from universities that have uh, published extensive information about uh, different plant varieties and different levels of toxicity they may have or what their uses have been uh, what are poisonous and what are widely considered edible as well okay yeah i only recently started thinking about using um, flowers from the pea plants yeah they're beautiful uh, yeah and uh, they hadn't really occurred to me before i guess because i was so focused on growing them for the peas yeah <laughs> Well, the problem is if you pick the pea flowers, then you don't get the peas. Yeah, I just have to grow more, more plants. Yeah, so that I they can... are delicious. My favourite edible flowers are the, the herb and vegetable varieties of edible flowers. So mm. peas in salad just give it 
such an amazing flavour and texture, especially um, snow peas and uh, broad beans, broad bean flowers. Oh, they? yeah. They look stunning as well. Yeah, they are. And um, some of the, they have the really dark centres. I can mm. see them on my um, vegetable garden out from my kitchen. Wish we could leave the flowers on there for longer. Yeah. <laughs> and there are some that are quite different flowers that are quite confusing in terms of them looking similar. I remember reading some debate online that people were talking about a particular flower and I think in their case they were it was like feverfew and something else and they were saying that they were when people just use the common names then it becomes tricky to work out which one they're actually talking about yeah and some so for example um there's queen anne's lace which is an edible flower but false queen anne's lace is highly toxic so yeah there is oh that's one of the you know uh, 101 of edible flower eating is making sure that you know exactly what you are eating and identifying the plant knowing where it's come from how it's been grown that it is free from uh, pesticides and herbicides and yeah that you you it's kind of like foraging for mushrooms I guess you, you have to know what you're actually what you've got yeah yeah I'm, I don't forage for mushrooms around I know a lot of people around here do because I'm just not confident that yeah well I'm the same yeah <laughs> I'll pick the right <laughs> the right things. So how many different varieties do you think you probably grow now over the course of the year? I probably don't grow compared compared to how many edible flowers there are actually are. I don't grow that many because I grow more for my own interest and my own use, but I'm highly dictated to by the commercial viability of the crop and also the market demand. So there's, mm. you know, we grow 10 times and sell 10 times as much viola as any other edible flower that we grow. But, you know, my favourites would be the ones that have more flavour, like the pineapple sage or the chive flowers, rocket flowers and the fennel flowers are delicious and lavender. But there's only a demand we might sell a few punnets of those each week. And so the viability mm. of that crop yeah. is always available is not, yeah, it's not, it's not viable to invest all your time in a crop that mm. has such a small demand so we definitely are dictated to by by the market yeah our fennel flowers are beautiful I love yeah. those yeah <laughs> they're really lovely and so what would you is there any particular ones that you want to try or new ones new things you'd like to do over the next few years um I'd like to do a lot more of the vegetable flowers and the herb flowers mm. uh, I love cut flowers so there's a lot of cut flowers that are edible dahlias and yeah so I'd love to to grow um, some of the bigger blooms that can be used in cake decoration so that might not be very appealing to a chef to include dahlias in their restaurant plate dishes but you know having large blooms that can look quite stunning on a plate oh sorry quite stunning on a cake or yeah a more theatrical display of edible flowers Mm. because snapdragons are too aren't they yeah they are and they look beautiful on a you know on a cocktail glass and they're very theatrical Yeah. And they have a beautiful aroma too. I don't know if you've ever noticed. Yeah, but and I've, I've only really been growing them the last couple of years. And um, I, I hadn't occurred to me before that they were fragrant until I was picking some of them and I thought, oh, they're really, they're actually quite strongly fragrant. Yeah, we can walk into um, our polytunnels at different times of the year and depending on what crops in the most um, most abundance at the time, we'll get different aromas going through the poly- polytunnels. So you can walk in when the 
when it's a sunny afternoon and the uh, sweet alyssum is in full bloom and you'll just ah. get this waft of honey going through. Mm, that's beautiful. Yeah. Or yeah just, my mum used to always grow that. And one of the most um one of the most interesting things I've found since growing edible flowers is the variety in aromas of roses. There's not just one rose smell. Every rose smells so differently. So I have mm. some of my favorites and yeah the variety and depth of the aroma of different roses is is yeah quite extensive. Mm. Oh could do a whole podcast just on roses there's so many <laughs> to talk about there's such a so many rose aficionados out there well look thanks for sharing all of your knowledge with us today it was it was fascinating and uh, I know that we have in this corner of the world quite a few little micro farmers but yeah. um, not many who just do edibles so you're probably the only <laughs> one who just doing edible flowers so yeah well done for how long you've been going on it really and uh yeah, how it's grown. It's terrific. Yeah, I love our little community of microflower farmers around here. It's really nice to um, kind of share our struggles and our achievements and just be able to compare what we're doing in our gardens as well, um, knowing that we've got the same kind of soil, the same kind of climates, the same much easier to relate to farmers in your own area or flower mm. growers in your own area than try and you know see what someone's doing in Canada or see what someone's doing in another part of the world and wonder why you, you can't get the same results yeah sometimes on online forums they be talking to people who are in Queensland yeah. and I'm thinking how are you growing dahlias now <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> so it is reassuring like that and I think there's connections are really important particularly when you're doing something where it is often a solitary kind of endeavor exactly yeah and that's definitely one of the struggles I find with my business is you know my work colleagues are amazing and it's great to bounce ideas off them but when you're the person that needs to make all of the decisions it's yeah it can be quite isolating and yeah so it's nice to be able to connect to other micro flower growers in the, the region and kind of bounce ideas off them and yeah. you know get encouragement that you are making the right decisions in the farm that's right well thank you very much thank you for your time <laughs> See you. all right bye lauren just a note on our very catchy garden hose tunes we have our original music composed and produced by martini toothpick Martini Toothpick are Dan Zielinski and Mika Coleman. We would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we reside and recognise their continuing connection to lands, waters and communities and recognise that their wisdom and knowledge has been passed on for thousands of years. <laughs>